Alright you guys, so I am especially thankful and glad to be gathering on Sunday evenings with you all to go through uh, the Baptist Catechism. And it's worth saying every now and again, just reminding ourselves that Catechism is not a Roman Catholic thing. Although many people today, we hear the word Catechism and people automatically think, oh this is a Roman Catholic idea. It's absolutely not. It's simply a Christian idea, even a Baptist idea. I mean this is a Baptist Catechism, it's a document that's a few hundred years old. And so Christians have been using this type of teaching for a long time, so we're blessed and privileged to be able to use it as a basis for studying God's Word, because what it does, what it does really well, is it introduces us to rich theological truth, to Christian doctrine, in short and succinct and memorable ways. And for some people today especially, even adults, not just kids, some of the things that Baptist Catechism is going to go through will be new for you. Uh, even if you've been a Christian for a long time, I could easily see many scenarios in how that would end up happening. So take, for example, the question and focus that we have for tonight, which concerns one of Christ's offices. And even just that terminology, even, one of Christ's offices, an office that he fills, an office that he executes. These are foundational and important doctrinal truths that are in view for us here. And if I had to guess, when I first heard Christians talking about this sort of thing, or, or really, I guess, read Christians talking about this type of thing, I think it would probably have to have been about five or six years after I had become a Christian. And these are, these are again, these are important truths that are set forth here in the Baptist Catechism about what Christ does. And even at that time, I think it was the result of my own reading and study. Of course, my experience in the Christian tradition and coming to Christ and being around the church involved a, a tradition of Christianity that can maybe be, be described as uh, like fundamentalist light, and I use the word fundamentalist in, in a bad way at, at first in that, in a negative sense, and then dispensational and also on the shallow side. And so those are three characteristics that don't necessarily give themselves over to embracing the rich theological tradition of the church. And so I was never turned on to the specific and historic language that our catechism employs, that Christians have actually been using for hundreds of years, or at least I don't remember it, if, if, it had, if I had heard it in those first, you know, those formative years of my relationship with Christ, uh, it certainly they weren't emphasized at least. But just think about these offices that, for a moment, that Nick introduced for us um, a couple of weeks back in question 26. Christ, as our Redeemer, executes the offices of prophet, priest, and king, both in his humiliation and his exaltation. That's Amen. question 26, the answer to question 26. Now, if you were to just read through scripture, and just, you know, from Genesis to Revelation, and, and maybe a number of times, maybe multiple times, and we're blessed and have the privilege to be able to do so, since we have the Bible so readily available to us, which many believers didn't have in previous generations. But if you were to just do that a number of times, odds are very high that you would, that you would come out of that reading saying, oh, Christ, he executes the office of prophet, priest, and king. You would get that just from a continued reading of scripture. I, I think you would, but with the illumination of the Holy Spirit guiding your study, of course, as well. And a good catechism is always going to be biblical. But look at the potential, and this is why I love catechism, because look at the potential that a catechism has to teach someone to lay a foundation as they are studying scripture. I mean, you could be working through this catechism as a new believer, discipling them and providing for them a framework of Christian doctrine that will help them to read the Bible 
better, even on their own time, and even how to listen to sermons better. So let me just give you an example about this, I guess, since they're here. Uh, my boys are 11 and 9, and we've been working through a catechism for the last five years, a little bit longer, maybe. And it's different than this one that we're using. It's a more simplified one, it's a children's catechism. And these are older questions that I'm going to ask them, so they might be a little rusty, maybe they know. Um, but let me ask you guys first, I'll put, well, I know, they haven't read through the Bible even once. <laughs> Right, and they're young, they're young boys, and I'm not saying it's a, you know, it's not a knock on you guys at all. There are many, you know, I know many professing Christians who have been in the faith for decades and they've never read through the whole Bible. So it's not, I'm not trying to knock you guys saying that. But I'm trying to say that you wouldn't have discovered these offices of Christ by reading the scriptures because you haven't done it yet. Right. So as the children's catechism says, now I'm putting on the spot, I know, but what does Christ do for His people? Okay, very good. And why is Christ a prophet? Because he gives you the world Oliver, do you know any of these two? <laughs> okay, why is Christ the priest? Uh, because he died for us and died for us. And why is Christ the king? Because he rules over us and he Okay, so you see, knowing that now, is going to help them. I think as they read through Scripture on their own, it's going to help them as they listen to sermons because they already have in their, you know, this rote memorization right now. It's very simplistic. But a catechism is great for this because it helps you to understand Christian doctrine and you have that in your mind as you go to the Word of God. And listen, where do we read about prophets, priests, and kings in the Bible? I mean, did Jesus just come onto the scene and these offices were then just invented by him? I mean, where do we read about the abundance, even, of prophets, priests, and kings, either good or bad? In the old, yeah, in the Old Testament, right? And so what we see, then, is that the Old Testament is, is absolutely necessary to our faith. Number one, be extremely wary of those people who say to you that you don't need the Old Testament, or you can forgo using the Old Testament in your study, or they, you could disregard it, even. The Old Testament is filled with many shadows and types that point to and reveal Christ. Amen. He is the reality of the shadow. He is the antitype to the type. Amen. And so all of these prophets, priests, and kings that you read about in the Old Testament, whether good or bad, they are in some way pointing to how Christ would execute these offices, but obviously in a much better and complete way. Um, nearly every significant person recorded in the Old Testament filled one of these offices. Do you realize that? Not every person in the Old Testament, but nearly every significant person that we might think of in the Old Testament was either a prophet, a priest, or a king. And the reason for that is because God is wanting, even very early on, from the garden on, is wanting to set our might, our hearts, and our minds, our attention on his beloved son, our Savior. So it's just filled with these sorts of things. God wasn't just inventing the wheel, as it were, when the Son of God took on flesh. He was enacting out his plan of salvation, uh, the, the pactum salutis, the covenant of redemption, and leading up to the time when the Son of God would take on flesh to do his specific role within that covenant. God was graciously letting his people and us in now in the future with the Bible know what the Messiah, the last Adam, would do and be by already creating these offices to exist among the people of God before Christ who, who is the prophet, the priest, and the king, even came onto the scene. And because our Christ, and the reason for that is, of course, because Christ as our Redeemer executes these offices all perfectly, and they are essential to our salvation. 
And that's why Baptists have been teaching since uh, this, at least since 1677, when the Second London Baptist Confession was first drafted. That's what they teach in Chapter 8 in Article 10, which says, um, which by the way, too, is, so we know, I think we talked about before, the, the London Baptist Confession, they, they took effort to show solidarity with the Presbyterian brothers of the time, and so they took the Westminster Confession and changed it, made some modifications to it and added to it, subtracted to it. Well, in the eighth chapter, which is the chapter on Christ the Mediator, they added two more articles in that. And one of the articles uh, says that the number and character of, the, of these offices are essential. Without Christ executing these offices of prophet, priest, and king, we wouldn't be saved. Nobody would be saved. And, and, every, and even though that's not in the Westminster Confession of Faith, I think every Presbyterian would agree to that, that statement as well. So last week we looked at the first three of these offices. That was the office of prophet. If you missed that one, I would encourage you to go online and give it a, list, give it a listen. It's helpful. Uh, but now we are on the second office, that of a priest. So let's actually get to the question. It's there on the outline for you. It's not really an outline this time again. I just didn't really have time to kind of make an outline like I usually try to do. So it's just a blank sheet of paper. If you want to take notes, you can use that. But it has a question and answer on it. And on the back side are book recommendations, like I tend to try to do as well. So the question is, how does Christ execute the office of a priest? And the answer is, Christ executed the office of a priest and is once offering up himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and to reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. So, first thing maybe to notice is that, and this is just kind of wonderful actually, kind of great I think actually, that every scripture citation, I didn't read those along with the question, but they're on your note sheet, but every citation is from the letter to the Hebrews. Ross mentioned this a little bit last week even, but I mean, you would be benefited greatly just by reading the letter to the Hebrews to get a grasp on what it means for Christ to, to execute the office of a priest. Uh, you could just you could actually just put your finger in Hebrews now because that's where we're going to be spending most of our time as we when we get to opening up the Word. What the author of the letter to the Hebrews does in this in this book, this whole book, and really I I think. Um, it really feels like a sermon. If you read, if you have never done this before, just read all of Hebrews in one sitting. It, it, it's a sermon, I think. It, it, it comes across a sermon. It is, it is filled with exegesis of Old Testament passages. Amen. And what he does specifically, that's relevant for us tonight, is that he is exegeting the Old Testament about passages that especially point to the superiority of Christ. Amen. And specifically relevant for us tonight um, the superiority of Christ as a priest. So, I, I mean, really, that would be a better sermon than what I would do tonight, would be to read the letter of the Hebrews and understand what, uh, what all is said there, but there's too much to convey everything there in a simple, you know, 45-minute, 30-minute time, time frame tonight. But it, it, it's, it's a great book, and, and, and we know, of course, already that it, what, one of its main things is to teach that, that Jesus Christ is superior in, in every angle, in every, in every way, in every sort of office. But again, there really is a big focus on his priestly role in this book. Wonderful things that he reads. And then secondly, you notice that the question and answer doesn't seek to define a priest, generally speaking. But what it does do is tell us how Christ executes this office 
and it does it in two categories. One, I think that most people will probably be more familiar with uh, up front. Uh, first, it's the reality that he offers himself as a sacrifice. That's pretty germane to the Christian faith, right? That Jesus himself was a sacrifice, and which reconciles us to God. And then secondly, that he makes continual intercession for us. And that intercession that he does for us preserves that reconciliation for all of eternity. Friends, the, the doctrine of Christ as a priest, as, as priest, is a great joy for us. It's a great joy for us to understand these things. It's a doctrine that testifies to Christ as our living hope. It's, it's, it's a joy-inducing doctrine. It should make us glad. It should make us so happy to know the, the promises and the blessings that we have in Christ by being united to Christ with who he is and what he did as our priest. And it also humbles us as well. Because, like, why would God do this for me? It's wonderful, the, the doctrine of Christ as a priest. So firstly, considering the answer in the Catechism, we read that Christ executes the office of a, of a priest, obviously. And the question that should come to mind, maybe initially, especially maybe if we're not familiar with Christian tradition and faith, is, is you know, was Christ in fact a priest? Is that what scriptures teach? The answer, of course, yes, he is. He is a priest, but it's not quite as simple as just stating that, really. I mean, there are all kinds of ways in which we might understand or think of priests today, and that would be error here if we were applying them to Christ. I mean, you have Roman Catholics who call themselves priests, and that's because they see these men as having a special role in the life of the church that gives them extra access to God, which normal people don't have. They think that they're actually sacrificing Christ in, in the Mass, and that's a little simplistic, so I'm just going fast for time here. And there are other issues as well. But they, the Roman Catholic notion of a priest is more really in line with the Old Covenant Levitical priesthood than what the New Testament would refer to as the priesthood of all believers, the, the royal priesthood. The Roman Catholics don't have a biblical view of priests. In, in 1 Peter 2, Peter says that all Christians, are a royal priesthood. So, so Christians, all Christians, not just a super spiritual sect, are actually all king priests. Amen. We don't have time to get into that too deeply because it's not what this question is about, but it really is glorious. It's glorious that this is the case. It's a, it's a benefit of the covenant of grace, a gift that we get in being united to Christ through faith, through that spiritual union that we have with him, that as Christ, is king and reigning, we are privileged to reign with him. And as Christ is a priest and ministers to us, we also get to share in that ministry towards one another. Yet, Christ ministers to us in a much different way than we're able to minister to one another. It's a greater way that we can minister to one another. And lastly, um, Christ is not a priest in the way of the Levitical priesthood either. And that you'd have to have some background with the Old Testament to understand more of how that entails. But again, that's what the letter to the Hebrews actually does. It executes the Old Testament, Old Testament passages. The, Levit the Levitical priesthood was good, don't get me wrong. It was for a time and a purpose. But that time and purpose was officially done with the death of our Lord Jesus. It, it, they didn't perform that, that sacrifice themselves, the sacrifice of Christ. Christ himself did that, which we'll get to that, of course. But upon Christ enacting of the role of priest in offering himself, 
the Levitical priesthood that we see in the Old Testament was just done away with at that moment. That's the veil in the temple that was torn asunder in Matthew 27, right? That, that whole, in fact, not just the Levitical priesthood was done away with, the whole Old Covenant was done away with at that point. It was symbolic of the Old Covenant being over. And that's actually one of the in, intent of the letter to the Hebrews. So again, it comes across like a sermon. What you have happening at this time, whoever wrote it, they're writing to a group of, of Jewish Christians who are, for whatever reason, being enticed to return back to the Old Covenant, to return back to those old ways of worship, and, and then to deny the mediation of Christ in doing that. That's why you have these warning passages. The intent of the letter of the Hebrews, one of the intents, is to say, look to Jesus. He's better. Don't go back to the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant is done. And so what kind of a priest is Jesus then? If he's not these other examples, well, we first read of it, maybe in, or we first alluded to it, I guess at least, in Psalm 110, in which David prophesied that the Messiah will be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And I'm assuming we'll be in Psalm 110 maybe next week a little bit, um, when we think of Christ as executing the office of a king. But the Messiah would not be a priest in the order of the Levites, but one in an order that is greater than that of the Levites, from Melchizedek. That's what Hebrews 5, 6 says. If you look at Hebrews 5, 6, if your Bible is like mine, it has it like quoted in blocks because that's how the, the publisher is trying to show you that he's quoting something here from another place, specifically the Old Testament. It applies that quote from Psalm 110 directly to Jesus himself. And let's look there now, actually. So Hebrews 5, if you, if you see 5, 6, you see um, how the author is... Well, we can start at verse 5. So verse 5 says, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but he was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, that I have begotten you. He also says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Then verse 7, we read a description of Christ's uh, priestly role, but he breaks it down into two categories. Uh, he breaks it down from 7 to 10. He breaks down this priestly work of Christ into two different categories. Now the same two categories that question 26 addressed, just very briefly, um, that Pastor that Pastor Nick did a couple weeks ago. So Christ's humiliation and his exaltation. So verse 7 and 8 speak of his priestly role in his humiliation. So it says, in the days of his flesh, uh, meaning before he was glorified, right, and, and resurrected. That, that's the implication there. He offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Now, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. So cried out, Jesus prayed, we have multiple examples come to mind that we, I'm sure we could all think of. He cried out, he, he had tears of calling out to God the Father saved. This was part of establishing Jesus as you know, truly a man, veritas homo in, in the in Latin. Verse 8, again, he the son learned obedience. Think along the lines of the kenosis, the, willing, the willingness of the Son of God to humble himself and taken off flesh. We've talked about these things in previous lessons. Again, the catechisms are systematic. They're building on top of each other. So as we get to this, we have these other things hopefully somewhat understood, somewhat grasped. 
he's a human, he's, he's, he's taken on the human nature, he's experiencing the things that humans do. But then in verse 9, his priestly role of exaltation is described in brief. He's made perfect. And he becomes the source. And God's already perfect, of course, right? So speaking to him as a true man as well. He's Christ, the God-man. He's man and God in one person. Two natures, two wills, one person. And so we read he's made perfect as a true man, the God-man. And he's the source of salvation to all who obey him. But note, is Christ the priest? Verse 10, yes. He's designated by God. Go back to verse 5. He was appointed by God to this, David. But verse 10, he's designated by God to be a priest. And not just a priest, but a high priest. Not exactly like a Levitical high priest, okay? That's another thing, actually. I'll mention that briefly. But one, and also one does not just become a priest by deciding one day, like, oh, I want to be a priest. That's not how that even works in the old covenant system at all. Nobody um, is able to do that. Every Hebrews 5 1, if you look, uh, maybe on the same page, for every high priest, it says, is chosen from among men, is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Even in the Old Covenant, within the Levitical priesthood system, who were appointed to the office of the priest and the high priest, they were done so by God. It was just the Levites that were supposed to do the priestly duties, not everybody else. And that's actually much of the problem that you read in Judges and Kings and Chronicles. When you, when you see Israel failing at so many levels, many of the time, it's because people were, who weren't priests were acting like priests and actually chasing after the Baal and the other false gods, the Canaanite gods. Now, what is, but, but again, this isn't the case with Christ Jesus. Uh, he is appointed. He's designated this office by God. That's why there is no other name under heaven by which men may be saved, Acts 4.12, because Christ is the only one who's designated to this, to execute this office, and he's designated specifically to execute the office of the order of Melchizedek. Now, what's so special about that? Why is Christ called a high priest? Why not the Levitical priesthood? Again, the, the letter to the Hebrews is helpful to us. We're going to read from Hebrews 7, chapter 11, if you want to probably turn the page and get to that you could do that Hebrews 7 chapter 11 Hebrews chapter 7 verse 11 thank you Um, now I have to think of where I was oh so first remember where we meet back in Genesis 14 the very interesting figure there was what was known as the slaughter of the kings this battle had gone on and this priest king we read Matilda a priest of Elohim Elion, which is God Most High. Uh, he's the king of, Sa- of Salem, which is pointing forward to Jerusalem. He approaches Abraham, and he blesses Abraham. And he takes out bread and wine, since he's a priest. Interesting, right? Bread and wine, you think of like the, uh, the Lord's table. Mm-hmm. And then he blesses Abraham, and Abraham then pays tithes to Mithilpedek, because Mithilpedek is greater than Abraham. And, Abra- and in Abraham's loins, you read this in Hebrews, um, right around this area, uh, in Abraham's loins, as it were, were the Levitical priesthood. But here is one who is greater than Abraham. And Christ Jesus comes in the Matildedek priesthood. Now, all of this was before the covenant with Abraham as well, with the exception of the initial covenant agreement that I would argue for that exists in Genesis 12, 
with Abraham leaving his land. But it's in chapter 15 in Genesis, is which is the, is the section in which those animals are cut in half and they're laid on the ground, and then God causes Abraham, Abraham to fall into a deep sleep, and then God passes through those animals. It's like a, a pot of fire, a pot of smoke, and then a torch of fire, signifying that the covenant terms are laid out and that they're accepted and that there, uh, there you know, would be no violation of them on God's part, especially. Uh, so that means, but here we have Melchizedek, who is a king-priest of the Most High God. Mm-hmm. So that means that there were God-fearing men and women, and even in the case of Melchizedek, a priest-king, which were in Canaan uh, before the nation of Israel was even formed. And so it is this priesthood that Christ comes in, greater than the Levitical priesthood. So let's get Hebrews 7 and 11. It says, Now if perfection had been attainable through the, through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Achilledic, rather than one that was named after the sons of Aaron? You see, perfection was not attainable in the Levitical priesthood. Christ did not come in that line as priest, and Christ, of course, is perfect. In fact, Jesus is from the line of Judah, and the priests didn't come from the line of Judah. They came from the Levites. And so Christ Jesus needs to come from a greater line than, as a priest than that of the Levites, one which was actually typified by a priest king before the establishment or the ratification of the Abraham covenant. And there's a lot, there's a lot more that we can say about Melchizedek. He's a fascinating figure and a type of Christ. But let me just say this, and it's often pondered by Christians. I don't think Melchizedek was a Christophany. I don't think that he was a pre-incarnate Christ here. Two quick reasons for that. Just because, number one, the interaction between Abraham and him aren't consistent with what theophanies. I mean, usually people, when they realize, God, you fall down, and you're you're fearful for your life. Abraham didn't do any of that. But also, in the letter of the Hebrews, it gives us more evidence that he is a type, that Christ resembles his office. Uh, perhaps even all three. He's the only, Matilda is the only person who does that, priest, king, and perhaps even prophet, which is say he's a prophet, because he declared to Abraham the words of God in saying that, Abraham, you are blessed by the Most High God, which was also Matilda's God. So it's really fascinating, really interesting that here are these people who aren't from the nation of Israel, preceding the nation of Israel, and he's this man who is ministering uh, to God's people even before the Abrahamic covenant. So, Christ um, is a priest and a high priest, which has some correlation to Levitical priesthood in the way of making atonement, of course, but he's a high priest in the sense that he's, he's higher even than the Levitical priest because he's from the order of Melchizedek. And then even more than that, he's a great high priest. Let's turn to Hebrews 4. Read uh, verse 14. Okay. I can see you still scrolling. That's a little bit different than turning pages. So I'll, I'll wait. <laughs> yeah, see, okay, so if you're going to be in one book and going to multiple places, it's, fi- it's more helpful to have an actual Bible than a screen at that time, because usually the screen is faster. But if you're in one book and trying to scroll through, that takes some time. Hebrews 4, uh, verse 14. 14. Yeah. Okay, so that reads, Since then we have a great high priest, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, 
but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So Jesus is a high priest who has passed through the heavens. He's come down from heaven. He goes back into heaven to continue his work of intercession. What other high priest can say that? None. Right? There is none. He's a great high priest. And because of that, we should hold fast our confession. And because of that as well, too, he's, he's the God-man. This is why we cover, again, why catechism is systematic. This is why we covered the hypostatic union in previous uh, questions, right? And because he's the great high priest, we know he can sympathize with us. He is God. He knows our hearts. He knows our minds. He knows the compassion that we need, the love that we need. A normal man couldn't do that. And so because of this, we can draw near to the throne of grace to receive mercy, to find grace, to help in time of need. So not only is he a priest, he's an amazing and wonderful great high priest that knows us perfectly and loves us and ministers to us. Praise the Lord all God Almighty, friends. Now, before we can speak to the sacrifices that Christ made, first we should note that the fact that Jesus has a priesthood presupposes that we have a problem, that we need a great high priest. Because listen, he came to satisfy divine justice and to reconcile us to God. That means two things. One, that we were not reconciled to God. And two, that doing so would satisfy divine justice. I won't go much into this because uh, the other catechism questions that we went through have already established these things, specifically questions 16 through 22. If you're interested, you can find those on the website and give those a listen. But the point being here is that Christ's work as a priest was necessary to fix this problem, to fix the problem of people being apart from the Lord. People needed to be saved. They needed to be reconciled. God Almighty couldn't just welcome people into his heaven as sinners because then his divine justice wouldn't be satisfied. He's too holy to merely wink at sin or to overlook sin. He would no longer be just if there was no payment for sin. But because Christ came to do what he did, in more than a moment, God's righteousness is maintained. As Romans 3 says, he is both the just and justifier. He's just because he doesn't overlook sin. Sin is either paid by us individually, or it's paid, and that would be eternally in hell, in the lake of fire. I was thinking, I was making some jokes earlier when we were talking about being baptized with fire earlier this morning. I wonder if the sprinklers, when they baptize, do they think that you're sprinkled with the, into the lake of fire? No, you're, you're merged into that. But that's one way to pay for sin. And the other way would be to have had Christ pay for it on your behalf. Therefore, justifying us in God's sight so that God is then just and the justifier because divine justice was satisfied there in the death of Christ. You didn't overlook sin. Sin was paid for on Christ. He had a wrath-satisfying death. It propitiates, it satisfies, it makes atonement or appeasement um, of God's wrath, as John notes in 1 John 2.2. 2. Or again, as the letter to Hebrews says it in our catechism, it cites this passage, it's Hebrews 2.17, it says, therefore he had to be made like his brothers, that means us, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Again, propitiation is the term that means to satisfy God's wrath. Christ's death did that. 
And because of that, when it's applied to us, we're reconciled to God. We were at one point at enmity with God, Romans 8, but, but Christ's work as the great high priest reconciles us to God. And 2 Corinthians 5 is like that bedrock passage for that ministry of reconciliation that is even then attributed to us as Christians because, again, as Christ is the great priest and he ministers, we who are united through faith, we get to minister in Christ's name as well. It's amazing. But let's consider what it was that Christ sacrificed. And of course, we all know this answer. It's central to our faith that Christ was once that it was Christ once offering up himself as a sacrifice. Once. Okay? Not over and over, but one time. Not every time we observe the Lord's table. That's not doing that every time then. It's the premier one-and-done situation. And we know he was done after that one time because on the cross, right before he died, he said what? It is finished. And, and so what did he do after his ascension? He went to the right hand of God to do what? To sit. To sit. Look, in Hebrews 10, 11, flip for shame. You're going to have to take my word for it on this one, my friends. Hebrews 10, 11 to 14. Oh, you're going to try to beat me there. Okay. I'm Verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. All right? So the sins that the Levitical priests were taking, they never took away the sins. But then it says, verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Again, alluding back to Psalm 110, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So you see how much greater Christ is in the new covenant not only is Christ, he's only did it once. He didn't have to stand there and repeatedly do it over and over and over and over and over again. He did it once and then he sat down. And not only is Christ the priest in this scenario, he's also the sacrifice that is offered. He offers himself. It wasn't enough for an animal to be sacrificed in a place. Now, the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament, they're not a waste of time or anything like that. The individual's faith in their efficacy was never for salvation though. It was only for temporal relief in the Old Covenant. So when you sinned in the Old Covenant, when you broke the covenantal terms that God set forth in this covenant, specifically that he revealed with Moses, and you were a believer, and you were a Christian, in other words, in this time period, you still had to take an animal to the priest for the sacrifice to be made. And not because it would save you, not because you somehow lost your salvation and you need to have this animal sacrificed, but because salvation was always hinged upon the future work of Christ for people, for people who were saved at that time. We went over that in other catechism questions already, right? But the reason that they had to offer these animal sacrifices was for the system of temporal blessing and cursing within the Old Covenant. And so their efficacy was towards that, not ever to the salvation of a single person. Hopefully that makes sense. But an animal sacrifice would never be an appropriate substitute for one man or for one woman to have eternal salvation, let alone all of the elect. Mm -hmm. That sort of a sacrifice would require a man, and even more, a God-man. Because a mere man couldn't be able to atone for the sins of all the elect, all the people. Nor could he have been pure without sin, and therefore he would have been unable to impute his righteousness to us as well. But Christ Jesus did that. 
So not only did he die to satisfy the wrath of God, to establish divine justice, but then in the atonement, he also accredits to us Christ, his very own righteousness. Christ's righteousness becomes our righteousness. And I praise God for his wonderful gospel. It saves us from start to finish. Amen. And this is why the catechism cites Hebrews 9, 14, and 28 at the end of that section. But let's look at the surrounding verse. Let's go there to Hebrews 9, verse 14 first. And actually, let's look at the surrounding verses as well. Let's begin at 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. See, that's, that's what it did. They sanctified for the purification of the flesh. It satisfied those temporal old covenant terms. Then verse 14, how much more, how much greater will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So in the first covenant, that's a little confusing. Is he referring then to the covenant with Adam? We're in the garden where Adam transgressed that, and we do see Romans 5 where Christ is contrasted to Adam. Jesus is the last Adam. He's the the second man, or the second Adam, the last man. So that is also very much contrasted again with the old covenant as well too. Now, let's read 28. In that same chapter, it says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting him. So again, why does the Catechism cite 9, 14, and 28? Because it's clearly pointing forth that Christ only had to do this once. It was a one-time sacrifice. One and done. And since, and we know, since we're all still here, here living in this world, uh, the second coming hasn't happened yet. And so what is Christ doing now? Because if you notice 28, it says that he's going to appear a second time, not to deal with sin, because that's been dealt with. Sin's been dealt with. We don't need another mediator. We don't need another sacrifice. We, Christ has done that. He's finished. He's sat down at the right hand of God. He's going to come again, not to deal with sin, but as this verse says, to save those who are eagerly waiting for them. And it's also, of course, going to come with the judgment of those who are his enemies as well, too. Scripture doesn't have to say everything all the time, but it's not a contradiction, Lenin said. So what is Christ doing now, then, since he hasn't come from that second time? He's doing all the things that he has always done, of course. Uh, he's upholding the world by the power, uh, by the word of his power, absolutely. But remember, the Son of God is now incarnated forever. Forever is a God-man. He is a priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, forever, is what we read a couple times, in this letter already. And so what is his priestly role now? Since the offering of himself is done, he doesn't have to keep doing that, his role now is his work of intercession. Literally, Christ lives to make intercession for us now. What a comfort that is, brothers and sisters. And this is another thing that sets apart Christ as the great high priest, a priest who is superior and greater than the Levitical ones. So let's look at the verse that Catechism supplies. These are some of the most beautiful words in Scripture, I think. Um, verse seven, or chapter 7, verses 24 and 25. 
are the verses that are, that are cited. Some of the most comforting, I think, in all of Scripture, this, this blessing that we have in the New Covenant. And this is, let's look at uh, 23, actually, for a little bit of context. So, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. So, think of Levitical priesthood. I mean, start with Aaron and then all the sons. And then generations and generations and generations of them. Because there were many of them. And why do they have to keep having new ones? Because they die. <laughs> They're men. They do what men do. They die. But look how great our Lord, our great high priest and mediator is. Verse 24. But he, meaning Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Able to save to the uttermost, to the final extent. There's nothing that can stop him. There's none that are, there's a great high priest like Christ. Amen. There are a number of applications we should take from this. I know we're short on time, so I'm sorry about that. We need to do, we need to do better about starting on time. <laughs> Keep saying it. Um, number of applications. I'll try to go quick here. For one, the fact that Christ is living to make intercession for us reminds us that Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. There's no one else that can do that, friends. All the former priests, they die. They need to, they need to be replaced. Christ continues forever. He lives, for, he lives forever to do it. And there's no one else who continues forever and lives for that purpose. As Charles Hodge, Charles Hodge says, there is but one mediator between God and man and but one high priest through whom we draw near to God. And as intercession is a priestly function, it follows that Christ is our only intercessor. No one else. Okay? But in a sense, there is a sense of course in which all believers are kings and priests unto God. I mentioned that a little bit earlier. And that's consistent with Christ being our only king and priest. But there is a sense in which one believer may intercede for another, which is not inconsistent with Christ being our only intercessor. By intercession in the case of believers, by mutual intercession, what we mean by that is that like one child of God may pray for another or may pray for all of men. And to intercede in that, in that sense as a Christian, as a believer, is merely to pray for one another. We did that before we even began uh, our time of teaching, right? But in the case of Christ, it, it expresses an official act, an act that only he can perform because of his office. Kind of similar to how an, an Israelite could pray for his kinsmen, but only the high priest could enter the veil and officially interpose and intercede on behalf of the people. So, so now, although we might pray for one another, Christ alone can appear as a priest before God on our behalf. And, and when he does that, He's pleading his merits as the ground for which his prayers for his people should be answered and heard. So much better than we could do, right? What merits do we have to bring to that? But Christ merits us. Fantastic. Better. His alone. He's the only mediator between God and man. So this is why uh, Protestants have objected to Roman Catholic teaching of like, the intercession of saints as practiced uh, in the in the Rome the Church of Rome. So a little bit of polemics, of, of polemics, okay? So five reasons why the Roman Catholic teaching 
of praying to saints to intercede is wrong. Because again, it's meaning something different than us as just saints praying. So number one, when they do this, it supposes a class of beings who actually don't exist. That is a canonized or an officially recognized departed spirits that are somehow saints and everyone else isn't. And in Rome, it's only those who, with the angels, who have been declared by the church on account of their merit to now be in heaven, who are regarded as intercessors. So in, in Roman Catholic theology, they think that certain people can be appointed the role of a saint, and that person then has special powers to intercede on your behalf, and so you pray to them. And, and this is an unauthorized assumption on the part of the church, the Roman church. The church of Rome has no ecclesiastical authority to appoint people as arriving to some special level of sainthood. I mean, even the things that we've been seeing with the office of a priest, only God appoints, right? And God is the one who actually appoints all Christians to the royal priesthood, who, of course, then, since they are united to Christ, are all rightly called saints. It's divine election that does that, not a council of religious men that gets to say that these people are some special class. Secondly, uh, when you, when the Church of Rome appoints specific people as saints that could intercede, it leads to practical idolatry. Idolatry is the description of divine attributes to a creature, a created thing, and in the popular mind, the saints, and especially like the the exalted, I could say that you know, in jest, uh, Virgin Mary, they're regarded in some way as omnipresent able to, to hear all of your prayers, able to be everywhere, like they could hear the prayers of people in Venezuela and people out in you know, China. But that's not what a person can do. And what they do with that is they, when they, they hear the prayers addressed to them, they relieve the wants of the worshipers. And Mary is even called the co-redemptress, showing that they think she has some sort of, again, a mediating role. But again, Christ is the only mediator between God and man. Thirdly, it's derogatory to Christ for them to do this. He is the only sufficient and just mediator between God and man. And as he is ever willing to hear and answer the prayers of his people, if we're going to think about what verse 24 says, that he, or 25, that he lives to make intercession for us. (laughs) Christ lives to make intercession for us, and nevertheless, the Church of Rome now wants to have other people make intercession for them. But Christ is living to make intercession for his people. We don't need some other saints to have special access. It, even applying that it does, thinking that it does, supposes some sort of deficiency in Christ, which doesn't exist, right? We don't need another mediator. We have Christ. Amen. Fourthly, the, the intercession of saints is of these sorts of things that Rome teaches is contrary to scripture. Because think of it how the saints attain that status. How, when, maybe you're not aware of how this works or how this happens, how is it that the Church of Rome establishes a third person's sainthood? Like, um, what's the most recent one, the woman that everybody talks about, that even Protestants like fall on over? Teresa, Mother Teresa, right? How, what they do is they look at the things they did. So think about that. They're literally looking to the merits of the person. Look to the merits of Christ. That, that's just derogatory to our Lord. It's, it's, 
is absolutely wrong. These people reach sainthood by their own powers and their own strength, which again takes away from Christ. And then fifthly, the practice is it's superstitious and it's degrading. It's superstition is, is belief without evidence. Right? So the practice of taking people and then proclaiming them to be saints and then asking them to intercede is founded on a belief that is not supported anywhere in Scripture. Zero. There, there's no verses that would instruct us to think that. It's calling upon imaginary helpers, really. And it degrades men by turning them from the creator to the creature. Right? Why point someone to a creature? Why not point someone to the creator? That's what we should do. Because Christ is the mediator. He's the one who's living to make intercession for us. We may be able to think of more reasons, too, but take time. We should be encouraged to know that Christ is living to make intercession for us. It means we don't need any other special mediators, any special interceders. We have Christ. We are blessed to be able to intercede for one another. It's an ordained means of God to accomplish his will even. But it's not the same kind of intercession that Christ does, where Christ pleads his own merit to God on our behalf for our sake. Secondly, this doctrine of Christ living to make intercession for the elect, for those who draw near to God through him, which can be none other than the elect, right? It makes a case for us, for us to understand particular redemption or particular atonement a little bit better, as contrasted, of course, to universal atonement or universal redemption. In other words, um, did Jesus die for everyone in the world or did he die for the elect alone? So, for one, particular atonement is simply biblical. I mean, even in the Old Covenant, the animal was substituted for the person. If you didn't bring the animal, no atonement for you. The punishment would fall on you eventually. The one discrepancy would be maybe with the Day of Atonement in which the high priest would have two goats in place of the whole nation. But it's not exactly clear in that example anyway because what is really being conveyed there is a substitutionary atonement in which sins are transferred on to uh, imputation onto one of the goats. But listen, uh, Christ isn't interceding for the whole world. He's interceding for those who draw near to God through him, is what Hebrews 7 says, as it's only those who he's making intercession for. If unlimited uh, atonement was correct and that Christ died for the world, wouldn't it then mean that he was interceding for the whole world as well too? And could, I don't want to be a blasphemer, could Christ's intercession fail? Absolutely not, right? Christ can't fail. So, so why then imply, so, so this helps us understand, again, just a little bit better, kind of a roundabout way, the doctrine of particular atonement, uh, particular redemption, particular atonement. Now, he's making intercession only for those that are drawing near to God through him, only the elect, only those that were chosen in Christ and before the foundation of the world. Um, Christ is an eternal priest who continues forever, and he's fulfilling an eternal covenant, the covenant of redemption and the covenant of grace. And so should we think even then that his work of intercession only begins at the time or the moment when a person is saved? Well, of course not. There is scriptural, scriptural evidence that would say otherwise. So again, thinking particular particular intercession. Uh, the Apostle Philip received Christ because, remember that interaction, it's kind of comical, it comes across comical to me at least. Uh, Jesus tells him, well, I saw you sitting under the tree the other day. And Philip is like, oh, you're the Messiah. I know you're the one. And so, but again, Christ saw him. It was particular. It was specific. Uh, the, uh, Jesus prayed for Peter so that Satan would not sift him like wheat. Remember that? That's Christ interceding 
what's the key difference between Peter and Judas? It's interesting if you look in um, John's or, or one of the accounts. I'm blanking on which one right now, but they're they're put back. I think it's John. They're put back to back, where you have Judas's betrayal, where he leaves the upper room, and then Peter's denial. They're 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 placed right next to each other. But what's the difference with um, each rejection of Christ? Well, Christ Jesus prays for one of them. Right? Jesus prays for Peter, and Peter is restored to ministry. Judas is not interceded for, and he kills himself. Thirdly, let's turn to John 17. Let's look at this. Okay. Yeah, this is good. I know, we're out of Hebrews. Getting out of Hebrews just once, but I'm making you do that. Moving a lot. <laughs> this is the high priestly prayer. Believe, uh, Brother Nick mentioned this what this word? morning as well. Verse 20. Of what? John chapter 17. 17. So Jesus is praying. This is right before he is going to be handed over to the Sanhedrin, his betrayal. And he's praying about the, the work of his people and the, the things that they will do. They're going to consecrate himself that they may be sanctified in the truth. And then in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word. For those who will believe in me. Think back to Hebrews 7, 24, those who draw near to God through him. Right? So again, this notion of Christ interceding for us right now as our high priest, it supports the doctrine of a particular atonement, a particular redemption. And then I'll say this as well, too. This is not meant to be a, um, a dig. necessarily my Presbyterian brothers and sisters, I, I love Presbyterians. The book recommendations on the list that I gave you, they're all, except for Benjamin Badone, those are all Presbyterians. I think greatly benefited from them standing naked eyes. I mean, I see that. Um, when we think of what they teach, teaching the New Covenant, remember, Christ is the mediator of the New Covenant. We read that earlier in Hebrews as well, too. Our Presbyterian brothers and sisters, they baptize their babies based on, they, they want to say they have biblical grounds for it, and they do so saying that they are part of the New Covenant. Because just like there were people in the Old Covenant who weren't truly saved, therefore there could be people in the New Covenant that aren't truly saved as well. That's, their, that's part of their rationale. Well, one of the reasons I could just never be a Presbyterian, and one of the reasons, you know, my kids aren't baptized yet, is because they're clearly not in the New Covenant. Why? Because of what Hebrews 7, 24 or 25 says. If they're in the New Covenant, that means Christ is constantly interceding for them. But if they're not in the New Covenant, that means he's not interceding for them. And so I don't think it's responsible for us to say that people are in the New Covenant when, in fact, they haven't made a profession of faith, when they're not drawing near to God through Christ. Because how is one, that one is saved? If you believe in your heart, confess your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. All right? So I don't, so I, and I, again, I love Presbyterians, some of my favorite theologians, not um, my ultimate favorite theologians, but still very helpful brothers in the faith. But just, you think about Christ's work as mediation and intercession for people in the New Covenant, well, then how are they putting their children in the New Covenant if they're not, and they're at the same time not wanting to say that they're not actually saved? It doesn't make sense. So let me close here with a quote from Francis Turgeon, a Puritan, about um, Christ's office of a, as a priest, and then we'll pray, and we'll um, have questions if there's time, if you have any. So uh, Francis Turgeon said, the method of our salvation it was not sufficient to obtain salvation once unless it could be perpetually, perpetually preserved and applied. Christ obtained the former 
so that salvation, by his satisfaction, his life and his death, but the latter he should procure by his intercession. By the former he obtained salvation, by the latter he preserves it. By the former he purchased the right to life and reconciled us to God. By the latter he actually admits us to a participation of life and continually keeps us when once established in the grace of God. That Francis Turgeon is just simply saying with a little bit more words what the Catechism answer is saying. That Christ is our priest in the work of saving us and continually interceding for us. Praise the Lord God for Christ having the office of, of the great high priest. We're so blessed because of it. Let's pray. Gracious and holy God, we thank you for time to be in your word. And we pray for understanding, Lord. These are lofty topics. And we know that we have many areas in which we can grow and mature in. So please sanctify us for Christ's sake. May you be glorified always. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Any questions or... I'm not going to do the microphone. I, I tested that last week. It didn't really do anything different. So as long as you talk loud, we should be able to hear the questions or comments if there is any. Yeah, Ross. Uh, actually, it's a comment. Uh, yeah. We brought up the high priestly prayer in John 17. And uh, it's a little more lengthy, but I, I'm looking at Christ as our mediator and intercessor and he started uh, at verse 20 I do not ask these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word and, and goes on uh, in verse 25 oh righteous father even though the world no let's see go back uh, father I just okay 23 I I'm, I and them you and me that they may become perfectly one but the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So this is Jesus praying to the Father and interceding on our behalf. He is asking God the Father to grant us to be in the presence of Christ glorified. Amen. So, uh, and this is a strong example of, to me, where Christ is being an uh, intercessor. And then uh, we've been in the book of Ephesians in chapter 2, verse uh, 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far uh, off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. He has made us both one, broken down in his flesh, and dividing the wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments, expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God and one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Um, that reconciliation, he's playing that role. If we don't have Jesus, I, and I realize that's a Amen. ludicrous thought in that everything falls apart without Jesus. For sure. But this is uh, where the true scripture, God-inspired scripture, tells us that Jesus is the one that provides that reconciliation. He facilitates it. So he's mediating 
or interceding on our behalf. In himself, right? He abolished the law of prophets we in one body, in itself. By our, it's like picking ourselves up by yeah. our bootstraps. We cannot say, you know, as an unsaved person, go to God and say, you know what? I know that I'm not reconciled to you, and I, I think it'd be a good idea. You know, I read about you in the Bible. You Sounds need good someone to me. else. Yeah. I'd like to be reconciled to you. It's, it's not going to no. happen that way. And then, of course, is all the scripture that we talked about. So what you're saying is we should probably do like 10 or 15 more sermons on the office of Christ as a high priest. Okay. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> 20, if you can 20. <laughs> yeah, John. Those got a few years ago. But that last one, just being in so many debates with Presbyterians, they would have a comeback for it, even though I agree. What do they say? Because I haven't heard. So, therefore, you know, we, he lives to make intercession for us. Uh-huh. So one of... Our dear brothers, <laughs> Ken and I had a debate over that one time, and he was like, well, you know, it's those who, says in the verse there, those who come to God through him, that you live to make intercession for them. So I would, my question would be the same, like, well, you live to make intercession for the elect. Well, not all the elect have come to Christ, you know, he's sitting at sitting down at the right hand of the Father while he's bringing those in. So right. he's only talking about those who've been brought in, so that would be their comeback to that. Even though I still don't think they've got the right mode. Of the only problem I think I, I think of when you say that is that they've still applied the covenant then to these babies. I and if it. these babies, and hopefully, they become professors of faith, hopefully, you know, they start taking communion after they make a profession of faith as they get older, they don't flee from the church. But if they don't do that, that's the problem, right? Yeah, yeah. I think he's right in the sense that that's what he's talking about. It's still kind of a red herring that he's not really addressing why you're putting them in the new covenant, right? Right. If they're not actually in the new covenant. Right. Because you, unless we want to say that people can actually lose their salvation, which Presbyterians don't want to say that either, right? That no. They're Calvinists. So that they adhere to the perseverance of the saints. Well, that's Absolutely, and as Baptists, uh, we agree I mean, to that too. As Baptists, we agree to that as well too. Uh, we, we, we don't talk about it. Yeah, we, we don't talk about it as, as enough. Maybe it's more. Maybe we need to be better about writing more about that. How there is obviously an invisible and visible distinction of the church. That's why we. I mean, we're a Baptist church that does church discipline, even. So of course we believe in that distinction. Where we are, you know, in the case of doing church discipline, we're saying we don't think you actually were part of the true church, you just appeared to be. And so when we enact church discipline, I'll get to see. So of course we believe in that distinction too, but again, I don't think that we then have the right to put people in the new covenant. So when we Baptists, when we think of the invisible and the visible church distinction, we're not saying that everyone is necessarily in the new covenant when they're in the church. Only the people that are in the new covenant are truly a part of the church, are truly a part of the body, and then, you know, the other people aren't actually even though they're part of the visible community, they're not actually part of the new covenant. They've tasted and seen it, as Hebrew says, and, and that's the danger then. And, you know, 
of them abandoning well, that. come back with you, both sides, or both parties have professing members. Well, true. Yeah, I say yes, that, amen. That have been baptized. Yeah, so it doesn't give us, I think, freedom to be reckless in the application. Yeah. Because when you baptize your infants, you're guaranteed that you are entering people in without a profession of faith. So you're not doing the best you can to shepherd those people into the right understanding of the right understanding of Christ. So I think that from a pastoral point of view, I don't think it's lovingly shepherding those children because you're, in a sense, setting them up to be confused about whether they are actually in or out of the covenant. I think, I think the clearer Presbyterian would, would say for sure, like, you're not, it's not baptismal regeneration. They would. Yeah. But, but by saying, though, you're part of the covenant, yeah, it is confusing. And then there's, and then Especially the when Christ lives to make intercession for those in the covenant. Right. Yeah. But that's what I'm going to the yeah. ones that I've talked to. Like, I know Ken would say that baptism will be a judgment for those who are not genuinely. Well, that's true for Baptists as well, too. Right, yeah. right. Mm-hmm. And so I think the ones who'll take. I've heard it, Presbyterians do it really poorly, and I've heard the ones go out of their way to say very clearly this is, has nothing to do yeah. with you being a believer. I think I like good Presbyterians, and I still don't think they've, they've ever <laughs> had a sufficient explanation for, for it, for me at least. Steve, you had your hand up. Were you talking, were you wanting to get in on that discussion, or do you have something? Okay. Like back in the Old Testament, were foreigners that lived in Israel considered to be under the Old Testament? If they were grafted in, if they, oh, they uh, were, right. were proselytized, yeah. they were outside of it. Huh? Seems like if they're looking back at the Old Covenant, they needed to be depicted as foreigners in the land and not. not oh, well, they, they're covenant children. So there's, a, you know, we talked about this in First Corinthians, how they are blessed in a sense, are holy. Uh, unbelie- the, un- the wife of an unbelieving husband is holy, um, or the other way around, I mean. And um, I, m- I messed that up, but you know what I'm talking about, in 1 Corinthians 7. Yeah. Um, so they, apl- they appeal to the for that. Really the difference is that so Presbyterians, their view of covenant theology is different. So as Baptists, and maybe not all Baptists are in agreement on this, I want to say that the new covenant is the covenant of grace. That those two things, that the new covenant is the covenant of grace revealed. Presbyterians say that the covenant of grace exists in all these different administrations. And so the new covenant isn't the, the covenant of grace, it's an administration of the covenant of grace. And so therefore, you can have people in the new covenant that aren't actually in the covenant of grace. Different for me as a Baptist. Right. And so to kind of further that, so then in the Old Testament, the, the, uh, the baptism was more like the administration is changing into, uh, I'm sorry, uh, it's complex. Do you, yeah. sorry, Go ahead. One, so, um, this man wrote questions down. Priests and atonement, I mean, so would you say that they, they're not obviously synonymous, but would you say that they kind of the function, the office function with Like in other words, are you are you maybe asking like, could he still be a priest if he didn't make atonement? Yes. 
Yeah, I would say, I mean, I... Do they go together, that's all. Yeah, they go together. Right. I, I guess he, he was the high priest before he actually made the atonement. So in that sense, I guess, yes. But I mean, he did obviously, can't, that's what the, the function is, the office. That's a, a similar to the um, to function. So the, what the priest does is the office. So the same, convert, this is the same problem we have right now at Southern Baptist churches who are wanting to ordain women to preach because they'll say women can preach and they just don't, but they're not in the office of pastor. So they're doing the function, but they're not in the office. Well, no, you can't separate office and function. If you do the function, then you're the office. And that's, again, why so many times, so many specific Israelites got into trouble because they perform the function without being in the office. Right. Like Saul, for example, right? Right, I was just thinking of Hebrews when we heard about the building that sat down on the right hand of Elijah to be on high, and then the ghost, it builds on that into him being a priest. That's why I was really excited when you read uh, the Hebrews passage, and I was like, man, I can't believe they didn't quote that verse, the one where about, <coughs> it, it came right before he, he did not have a high priest Controversy. It's just not necessarily clear. You know, you have to put on your thinking cap, I guess, because it doesn't. Because Bible in the Old Testament doesn't refer to a covenant in that way. They have specific. I mean, some people want to even say that there's no covenant in the Garden, right? Right. So, so, so it's. Well, it's not reformed. <laughs> right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I guess because it says new covenant, I just would deduce and say the first covenant is the old. Is the old? Yeah, that makes sense. Very good. Anything else? I was saying, um, uh, speaking of uh, Heiser, would you end up, if you have the whole thing, read those through all of the predicates? So one of them you split up is the difference between kind of, um, again, it's not him that makes it, right? He's just going there and look at the other solving right? But it's sure, sure. kind of the difference between moral sin, which is not transmissible. Like I can't touch somebody and then pass on the culpability of that. Versus something that's, you know, again, some of the uh, kind of the ceremonial type stuff, right? Like bodily missions or whatever it is, where you is um, you can't convey it and then make it a whole thing about the uh, sacred spaces and how they can be defiled. That's 
what's really interesting is yeah, that this, the, these ceremonies, right, the, the, the blood for these uh, goats and heifers are all related to this cleansing of the non-moral, uh, the sacred, it's really about sacred space, right? And so, yes, it's really clear, even in the Old Testament, none of these sacrifices could ever atone yeah. or take away um, moral sin. Yeah. There was no hope, there was nothing outside. Absolutely. Thank you guys for, any, any other things? We can stay around and chat still. Appreciate you guys being willing to stay here late. <laughs> Cut it off, man. That's my bedtime. I don't know.